you know, we can get a really good understanding of what's happening within that gearbox from early stage faults all the way to late stage faults. And so overall, that gives us a great opportunity to detect relatively early um, when things are starting to fail and actually track severity of that fault over time as well. Welcome to the Uptime Podcast. I am your co-host, Alan Hall, and I'm here with Dr. Rosemary Barnes and Joel Saxon. We got a really event-packed show. So we're going to talk about two uh, emerging tower technologies. One to do with spiral welding, a technique borrowed from the oil and gas industry, and then also laminated wood towers uh, being built up in the Scandinavian countries right now. And then we have a guest interview with Stephen Steen, Vice President of Sales and Marketing with Poseidon Systems, and he's going to talk to us about debris detection and keeping your gearbox running. And we're going to talk about whether Australia is about to face a skills shortage for workers to drive our really fast energy transition. And finally, we're going to talk about a portable wind turbine that you can take, put in a backpack and take camping with you to charge your devices. All right, everybody. First topic for the week, spiral welding of wind turbine towers. And now I, I saw this discussed probably a year, a year or so ago. And it went absolutely nowhere. Like nobody in the press picked it up. I, I did some actually a little bit of deep diving on this company. It's called Keystone Tower Systems. And they have developed sort of large scale spiral welding. And Joel, you may be more familiar with this uh, work coming out of oil and gas, but uh, you ever seen spiral welding mm -hmm. where they make pipes and things like that that are spiral welded together real quick and dirty? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. But think about, uh, I guess, the, the e most easy way to think about this is, uh, you ever seen a seamless rain gutter yeah, sure. machine? Yeah. Right. So when they have all, they have the stock steel, they have the trailer, they run the seamless gutter thing, and then kick it out, right? right. Of course, it's a different process. But it, same concept. On, on site, you're bringing in stock materials. Instead of a classical pipeline um, uh, building is truckloads and truckloads and truckloads of 40 foot pipes 40 foot pipes right. 40 foot pipes right and then that's you know heavy there's a lot of uh you know combustible materials used to to create those a lot of hydrocarbons burned to, to make it so it's yep. a little bit more efficient to do it on site that way um so yeah uh, you see it um of course anything any any place that's logistically challenged uh it works well and um so yeah well i like to see the concepts uh, the oil and gas to wind, right? That's right. What I, I harp on that all the time. Like this, the, the technology's there. Why aren't we using the same kind of stuff? So uh, kudos to Keystone Tower Systems. I hope it all works out well. Yeah, they have a $7 million grant from the U.S. Department of Energy, which has helped them develop this technology. And the key is there's one machine that creates towers sections. And so they can make a tower twice as tall, 10 times, 10 times faster than a conventional tower. And because mm -hmm. you can do it on site, you're just bringing the raw materials in. You're not shipping these large tower sections via truck, as we've seen in some of the more recent news stories where the trucks have tipped over carrying these tower sections. All that kind of goes away. Yeah. So they're going to create a factory on site where they're putting up wind turbines and just spiral weld these towers together. Now, yeah. the, the, I think the real key to this is who's involved. GE. Mm -hmm is involved, who has also been involved with Cobot on making concrete pads and maybe even concrete towers. 
So GE has working with Keystone, and Keystone has about 75 employees at the moment, but they're working on the first spiral welded tower for a 2.98 megawatt GE wind turbine, which is that a Sierra wind turbine, Joel? Is that is three megawatts of Sierra? Is that what they call that now? Um, I mean, the timelines tie together, but I can't say for sure. Okay. So the installation is supposed to happen later this year, and it'll be the first spiral welded wind tower in commercial use. So the question is, if we were talking about getting taller towers, it sounds like this is a really good way to do it. Rosemary, isn't that the point? Try to get higher up in the air? Yeah. uh, I mean, it's great if you can get up higher, you reach higher wind speeds that way, and the Power in the wind varies with a cube of the wind speed, so you know you a little bit, <laughs> a little bit more wind speed and a lot more power. Um, and at the moment, with traditional tower manufacturing methods, it's really limited by how um, you you know you're limited to a certain diameter of tower that you can transport um, on you know normal trucks on normal right. roads. Um, if you wanted to make a, mm-hmm. a taller tower, but you can't increase the diameter, then it means you're going to have to really increase the, the thickness of the the tower. So you use a lot more steel, and yeah, steel is expensive, especially these days, and it's energy intensive. Right. So if you can build it on site, then you can build whatever diameter makes the most most sense for your structure. So I think, um, yeah, this is one of the, there's a few different ways people are trying to be able to get away from, you know, that limitation of um, the tower diameter you can transport. Um, so, yeah, another way is people are building like scaffolding at the the, the bottom up, you know, kind of like um, they build part of the tower and then they jack it up and build another part underneath it and jack it up. Um, oh, but yeah. to, to sure. be honest, the spiral welding sounds like a neater solution and it's more, um, similar to you know existing tower structures so we're not going to have to start again with you know all of the validation of <laughs> of, of is this you know are there surprises when you make a, a tower in this way so of course there will be some um, validation phase but i wouldn't expect Something, huge yeah. huge yeah. surprises um so i think it should be able to you know roll out pretty quickly i like the idea of uh the doe being behind this thing as well right when the department of energy is behind it they got some some funding and some money in there because um of course we're always looking for how can we lower the levelized cost of energy and wind how can we get it more competitive with everything else so if this is the uh the the little injection to get a company moving to drive down that cost and spur on some more development i'm all for it all right keeping on this tower theme wood towers so Modvion, which is based in Sweden, and Rosemary, I'm sure I have murdered that name. It's probably something much more <laughs> Swedish than that, uh, is working with Stora Enso to use laminated timber uh, to build wind turbine towers. So if you go onto the website, it looks like they've laminated uh, multiple layers of uh, board together, it's basically steamed them, curled them, and bonded them together. It looks cool. Right, so if you, you have a chance, everybody go check out their website. What Madvian is saying is that their towers will last twenty-five to thirty years, so that last probably longer than the wind turbine will last. But they're significantly lighter than steel towers, and they're joined together with glue instead of metal bolts, which I doesn't feel right to me, Rosemary. I know you're the composites expert, but without having some bolts there, this, the mechanical engineering part of me just kind of cringes a little bit. <laughs> Uh, but they're, they're using Scandinavian spruce for its wind turbines, which is, is a renewable wood source. And 
on their website, they also say that they can reach 150 meters tall at these towers. Does that even... Okay, so let's just stop there. Rosemary, does this make any sense at all? Oh, kind of. I mean, wood is nature's composite, right? It is a composite material. Um, you've got the, you know, the yeah. fibers surrounded by, you know, some kind of nat- natural. Trademark. It's not, not my trademark. I always get credit for coining terms that I, I have not coined <laughs> on this show. But yeah, I, it is one of my, my favorite sayings. Yeah, wood is nature's, nature's composite. And I mean, you see, you look up on the internet, you can see all sorts of things made out of wood. There's plenty of, of bikes, like mountain bikes or or road bikes or whatever, like a million people have probably by now made their own bamboo um, framed um, bike. And yeah, it works because it's it's similar to, to composites. You could definitely make a, a wooden wind turbine blade if you wanted to. I mean, you can make wooden boats uh, or they make bi- boats out of fiberglass. So um, yeah, there's there's nothing really wrong with it, but it is a natural material and so it's variable. Um and like, for example, in wind turbine blades, they used to use a lot of balsa core. And I mean, a lot of manufacturers still are, but most people are trying sure, really yeah. hard to get away from it because it's a, a variable, it's got variable properties, you know, yeah. Um, quality control is harder than it is True. with something, you know, like steel, um, which is pretty, pretty easy. Um, and also, you know, supply chain um, is not so straightforward because, y- you know, you're dependent on nature and, uh, I don't know bushfires, um, what do you call them? Forest fires in uh, in other countries that you, you mm. know can cause problems. Yeah. Um, wood, technically, yes, it's a renewable resource, but can be depending on how you do it. And I know that plenty of people would strongly disagree with the statement that you know the Swedish um, timber industry is run sustainably. Um, they are definitely still logging some um, native native forests or you know areas of of trees and a lot of people disagree that they're yep, you sure. know managing the existing ones sustainably and that we could you know do do a lot more with them um yeah also not recyclable you would you know i don't know what you would do with it do with it afterwards maybe you can shred it and make plywood <laughs> or something i'm not sure um i'd assume so yeah, yeah. so i don't imagine that this is how wind turbine towers are going to be made in 10 or 20 years time um i think it's cool i I could definitely appreciate that it's like a cool you know hipster handmade wind turbine like that's nice i'm sure it looks lovely um make the blades out of wood too um and then it would look really really cool um (laughs) but yeah i um i don't see that it has a lot of advantages even for the environment you know i think that probably steel is a more long-term sustainable solution for for the towers and joel you know that plywood in america is really shot up in the cost big time right? and this is essentially layered plywood so is is it yeah, is the cost, I think that the, cost going to be the, the major constraint here well there's you know using them as in as part of a circular economy is definitely viable right because they can be i mean a lot of places are even heating with wood pellets in the u.s right, right? i mean that's a very but they could be ground up used for that they could be used for osb all these things so but i think there's just like like uh, rosemary saying a lot of variables here right um they're using spruce in scandinavian countries that's great well spruce like that doesn't grow in very many places in the world um you know the pacific northwest uh fantastic Uh, you might have some up in maine here i'm just talking in the united states right um so those and that type of tree is very uh flexible Right. And they're very fibrous. So like nature's composite. Right. Um, so that would work well for it. Um, 
I have seen these these exact same type of uh, laminated beams in industrial settings, actually. In northern Wisconsin, um, they use them for power poles in some places. Oh, wow. So you'll see... Yeah, so sometimes you see around like a corner on a highway where there used to be a bunch of the just the old school cylinder poles. They will have uh, some of these laminate beams that are um, uh, for the power lines, but they're uh, in a in a rectangle shape, right? So yeah. that they hold their uh, mechanical properties yeah. against the weight of the weight of the line, right? So this they're they're being used in industrial uh, settings, um, and that, you know that when those got installed, people were kind of looking like that's pretty exactly like, you said, like it looks like the inside of a cabin, like that's nice. <laughs> um, but but uh, there's also some things to it. I guess my some of the things that pop up to me be outside of the supply chain, and uh, you know it's nice to get away from steel costs, but then trees and whatnot, hurricane seasons and stuff in the U.S. driving lumber prices differently, but. I worry about the insurance risks of these things, right? So you're talking nacelle fires. Now a nacelle fire is an entire tower fire. Right. Um, or, uh, you know, what are we looking at for um, lightning strikes? Uh, LPS systems now have to have ground conductors all the way to the ground. Like it's just sure. a, there's a lot more on the insurance side that, that kind of piques my mind. But I'd have to agree with Rosemary. I don't see this being the, the way the industry goes, but. It's a cool project. Well, we have to just keep our eyes on it and watch how things develop because we're going to see a lot in technology and towers. It's just a question of which one's is going to come to the forefront. So after the break, everybody, we're going to have a guest interview with Stephen Steen. He's vice president of sales and marketing with Poseidon Systems, which is based in the United States. And they do debris monitoring or aware detection of gearbox and other things. And they have some really cool technology. So after the break, Stephen Steen, Poseidon Systems. Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound, but Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet, and it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. Stephen, hey, thanks for being on the program. I uh, appreciate you coming on Uptime. Great, thanks for having me. Stephen, you're the Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Poseidon Systems. And Poseidon is a, a leader in real-time monitoring, particularly for debris in gearboxes. So can you just give me some basics of what the Poseidon gearbox monitoring system does? Yeah, so our core capability is really around the metallic debris that comes off during, you know, when gears and bearings start to fail. So uh, we've designed a sensor that is best in class. It's able to detect all the way down to 40 microns. And uh, what that allows us to do is we insert that into the gearbox lubrication system. We take a small flow from that system and uh, pass it through the sensor, and we're able to get a distribution of sizes of particles uh, for ferrous and non-ferrous debris. So, you know, really what that allows us to do overall is, um, you know, we can get a really good understanding of what's happening within that gearbox from early stage faults all the way to late stage faults. And so overall, that gives us a great opportunity to detect relatively early um, when things are starting to fail and actually track severity of that fault over time as well. There's a lot of systems that the OEM 
will deliver with the gearbox. Typically, you can get a vibration monitoring system with that. What is the difference? And I'm trying to understand, like, what is the difference between a vibration monitoring system and a debris monitoring system? What, what are the similarities and differences there? Yeah, vibration's been around for a long time. It's a pretty uh, uh, sophisticated and well-known uh, system. In fact, within wind, what they call the condition monitoring systems, analogous to just saying the vibration system. In reality, there's actually other technologies that would fit underneath that paradigm of condition monitoring. So one of those would be wear debris. That would be one of the uh, systems that's part of a condition monitoring system for that wind turbine. Um, but again, just because vibration has been around for so long, it's relatively adopted within the system. CMS typically to most people means vibration. Um, but this all comes down to what do you consider a catch? You know, what is it that you believe uh, is uh, early enough understanding of what's going on within the system that you can get the outcome that you're looking for? And a lot of the times, because condition monitoring is defined by vibration, a catch is what is the vibration system able to do with different sorts of faults? And so what we try to do is kind of realign to, well, what, what would a catch actually be for a planetary bearing? Do you want to know a week before or a couple weeks before it'll go catastrophic? Or do you want to know a couple months before so you can start to figure out what is it, you know, what's going to happen? What, how severe is this? Do I need to start planning right now? Do I need to maybe bore scope in a couple weeks, a couple months? Do I need to derate? Do I need to take kind of different actions to optimize that wind turbine? And so when you look at the two systems, um, vibration systems are getting a lot better at detecting planetary faults. And a lot of the uh, vibration companies would claim, you know, a high detection rate, a catch rate of these faults but then we go back and say well did did that one week warning give you what you needed to to properly plan for that issue did it allow you to replace that gearbox with another gearbox when you already had the crane on site if you would have known earlier or whatever that might be so when you change what that definition is for catch it really allows you to kind of go back and um, look at the benefits of the different pieces so when you look at vibration versus uh, wear debris we think both are very important to the monitoring of, of wind turbines, but um, what you really lose or you don't have with vibration is the severity understanding of how bad is that fault. So since we're directly measuring the actual debris coming off of that fault, that gear, that bearing, whatever it might be, um, how fast it's happening and is it getting worse? Is it, is it losing faster, that amount of debris? really how bad is it and do we need to act now do we need to act later so this idea of slow progressing faults versus fast progressing faults allows us to kind of get that uh, understanding and really it, it's kind of uh relatively easy to know if it's a if it's a bad fault so this weekend mother's day i'm out i get an a, alarm on my my phone and i was able to pop it up look at the graph it was a shutdown alarm so it was just an auto end of an email to a customer to shut down the turbine because when let's say a gear tooth comes off, you know, it's a lot of debris, very distinct, as opposed to there's just a signature there that there's a problem. We can see if that's a little bit of, you know, pitting on the gears versus an actual thrown tooth or what that looks like. So you get this better understanding of what's actually happening and how fast that may need to happen. And um, again, one of the differences that we do are able to do with our sensors because it has that lower detection threshold. Um, some in the industry actually see that as a negative because they have been kind of inundated with, well, we don't want any false positives. And one of the things that our sensor is able to do with that, with that lower detection is it's a little sensitive to foaming and it will look like they're small particles. But because we have so much data, uh, we have almost 8,000 turbines worth of data and growing every year, um, 
we don't see that as a negative. We see that as positive because we actually know exactly what that foaming event would look like. And now you can see in some cases where the oil level is low enough, it's starting to foam. We have a, a trigger that says it's a foaming event, a low oil event. They can go, they can add oil to the gearbox and eliminate the foaming conditions that are happening within that gearbox, meaning now we're, we're doing preventative things. And so things that you wouldn't be able to do without the sensor, we're able to do now with, with, with these sensors because of uh, the ability for us to use all the available data from the sensor with a you know large number of turbines to kind of build these different sorts of detections. And so um, as new failure modes come about um, a couple of years ago, slipping races uh, kind of hit, hit the market across. And um, we were on a handful of turbines that started to see a high, high, high speed slipping out of race and uh, vibration system wasn't seeing it. Other things weren't seeing it. We were seeing it because of our much smaller detection capability down to that 40 microns. We were able to see these bursts of small debris right around certain sort of events. And we were able to take that time series, even though only one of the turbines hit our thresholds, we were able to actually pick up a secondary turbine that at the same time was having the same events. They were able to go and pin those bearings. And so when you talk about those early my God, N1 failures, the first ones that people start to see, if it's creating debris, we're going to see it. And, and so there's not a lot of debate that there's a problem. Um, we may not necessarily know what that problem is, but we're able to actually see it and go out and start taking care of that. And so um, that, uh, just because it is a lot easier to understand and it is a direct measurement of the damage being done, it does take out a lot of the guesswork. Um, again, as a weekend, just picking up the phone, seeing the alarm, being able to, you know, text the customer real fast before anything, uh, you know, negative happened and they were able to go out and take care of it. Um, didn't require somebody to sit there and analyze the data real in depth on a vibration system to try to determine whether or not that sort of threshold is important for, an, you know, a, a near-term emergency. It was automatic. Our first response, we know what those levels were and uh, they were able to act on it. So in, inside of a gearbox, what's the typical kind of failure then? Is it a more gradual failure? Failure. I know the ones we always hear about are the immediate catastrophics because they, they raise the most concern with everybody, but do most gearbox just gradually, gradually, slowly degrade and then go off that ramp of to, to some sort of significant failure? And, and how soon can you really start to detect, hey, this gearbox six months from now is going to have a problem? Yeah, there's sort of the standard failure rates, which, you know, they kind of say a bearing spall kind of works its way over a handful of months, six months, eight months, nine months uh, from that initiation and the more traditional failures of, of those bearings. But in some cases, it's such a surface level problem that it starts real slow. We've seen a detection two and a half years before it got to that catastrophic level. And so what's nice about that is because you have that two year window, maybe necessarily you're not going to do something other than confirm that that problem's there. Um, now the question becomes, when is it so severe that you have to do something? You either send boroscope people up every three months and spend that money, or you wait for that debris to get a certain level where we're able to say you should actually, now you need to go confirm it because if you look at it, you're gonna see some more severe damage. So because we're measuring the debris coming off of that fault, as it gets to certain levels, we know what that severity is. And that can take a very long time on some of these bearing spalls. Again, we've seen these in a half years, three years. Yeah, and so how does the Poseidon system analyze the debris data that's coming back? Is there something on the turbine itself? Is it getting pushed up to the cloud and then analyzed on a server somewhere? 
How do, what's, what's going on behind the scenes where we can't see it? Yeah, it's pretty flexible overall. So we have this the, the sensor itself, which is you know collecting the, the raw data, the particle counts and that sort of thing. And that's getting sent up to the SCADA system typically and then shared back to Poseidon um, through an API. So we're, we're typically the, the owner operator, or the OEM is seeing the raw data. They're able to have some, maybe some emergency alerts in their system. And then we're doing the more in-depth in, uh, analyzation in the cloud into that. And so we have an edge device that allows it to plug in to the site network. And then there's a couple different ways to then collect that data, um, hopefully in an easy fashion, and get that data back into the cloud where we do that analysis that we just talked about. So in, in that analysis, because you said you were like on 10,000 turbines. So that's a lot. That's a huge sample set. Uh, if you're analyzing data on the cloud, then does that then allow you to compare that data? So if I'm out in Kansas somewhere, can I look to see if, you know, uh, seeing turbines in Ohio, can I, can, does that data kind of get collected together to say, okay, this turbine has this kind of failure at about two years. This one in Kansas is starting to, to, to head that way. Is, is that some of the... Uh, uniqueness of the data that you can that you have that you can actually correlate those events yeah some of the data that we <clears throat> try to get up front when we do these installations is configuration and metadata so what's the turbine type what's the gearbox uh, type and model um, that allows us to obviously then look at different makes and models with known failure modes um, so we have this metadata database in the background that helps us start Correlate. Well, we're seeing it on this gearbox, on this wind turbine type, uh, from this year, right? This this batch of gearboxes. So we can start to then get a good idea. Okay, well, it's this bearing supplier, and when we see these bearing suppliers on these gearboxes on this known configuration, we can start to get an idea of okay, this is the typical failure mode, which gives us a little bit more confidence and insight to what the recommendations would be as well. Um, we can then go, okay, well, on this particular gearbox, we typically see these sort of bearing spalls, these issues within that system. Going back to the slipping bearing issues, it was a very specific configuration, very specific type in our database. So we knew which ones to kind of turn on that algorithm to do those detections. And those can very much look like a gear tooth fracture, which is just, you're not producing any debris, and then you produce an, a, a ridiculous amount of debris out of nowhere. And uh, triggers all your alarms, and you know you, you try to have to figure out how quickly do I need to act? Is it a is it a chip tooth? Is it a full tooth? Whatever that that might be, based on these different levels. But because they can look a little bit similar between different gearbox uh, manufacturers as well as different ones, you try to get an idea what those failure modes are from that metadata. So you can say it's okay. They're two different wind farms, two different locations, but it's the same supplier. Therefore, I should start to see some of these same failure modes. And without that metadata behind it, you're really not going to be able to do that sort of analysis. Wow, that's that's amazing. So in a sense, then, if you do have something cause an alarm, if you're going to go up and look, you have a pretty good idea before you get there what you're looking for. This is not start searching around on the gearbox looking for everything. You actually can pretty well pinpoint where you need to be looking and just put a boroscope on it lay some eyes on it, say, yep, that, that actually happened. We did lose a tooth, or we do have a, a raceway that's wearing away. We need to go fix it. So that doesn't, doesn't that make life a lot easier on the operator? It seems like it would. Yeah, it certainly does, especially knowing when they need to go up and do that. Because a lot of the times, again, with these other systems, you know that there's something wrong. You just don't know how bad it is. So did I waste a trip to do a boroscope? Um, there's a lot of the questions that we, we deal with. And so... Um, 
having a better insight of how bad is it? Where should it be? You know, what am I looking for allows the boroscoper obviously to kind of focus in on what that is. But two, if you think about it, end of warranty inspections, they send a boroscoper out to every single gearbox. Question is, why would you spend hardly any time in a gearbox that showed no debris whatsoever? There's no debris in the system, then there's nothing for them to see if they do a boroscope. And uh, versus another gearbox, which may have a lot of debris. And so you can then start to also say, okay, we may still do all the boroscopes. Some cases they only boroscope turbines where we have enough debris that you visually should be able to see a problem. In other cases, at least you can focus the boroscoper to say, do a quick one on this one, but spend an extra hour if you have to, to find the problem on this gearbox. So when you're doing those end of warranty claims, you can go back and say, okay, well, we, we found the problem. Here's the image. Here's the debris from the Poseidon system showing that it's a severe, uh, severe problem and it's escalating or it's accelerating to a fault. Really gives you some weight behind that that you, in some cases, probably would have missed. So if you're relying on, let's say, the OEM vibration data, um, not being a third party, they're giving you information. Um, there, there, there's a there's a conflict of interest. Whereas we don't have that. We just here's where the situation is. Here where we see the problems. So if you go and you look at these turbines, spend some extra time to make sure you get the pictures of the damage, and then you have that. So when you, ease of mind, ease of uh, uh, focusing on where you should putting your resources. It's very, very good at really focusing where you need to be focused on. No, oh, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So if if I'm an engineer and I've got a hundred turbines and I've I've got the Poseidon system on and it's measuring debris in all these turbines. What am I looking at sort of day to day, week to week? Is is the cloud interface showing trend lines so I can actually watch things happen sort of live and, and I know when that next service period comes up, I can I know I'm gonna need someone out here looking at these specific turbines. Is it is it that sort of thing so I can uh plan ahead? Is it really just kind of a straightforward screen what what am i looking at here we try to make it a lot easier than that so we don't want the customer to have to interpret a lot of the data to determine what they should be so we have very clear criteria based off of the wind turbine making model of here's what we put in a critical category versus a medium versus a low and those categories have here's our recommendation so there's a shutdown category which is shut it down go look at it don't turn return it to service until you visually confirm that you think you can run that machine versus in the next two weeks, you should do a boroscope versus in the next three months when applicable, you, do, you should do a boroscope. So there's kind of these timeframes attached to them. So again, you're optimizing that, that role. That's in more of a summary. Here's where it is. Here's where our recommendations are. Then if they want to dig into that data, they can. They can look at trend lines. They can look at distribution of the debris of where we think the severity levels are. And with most of our customers, they actually choose to do our higher tier service where we actually have a monthly call to review the data and have a discussion back and forth. So what are you seeing? You know, what are we seeing? Um, because there's also some operations decisions to be had. Maybe they can't get a crane out no matter what for eight weeks. It's not going to happen. Okay, well, we should probably have that discussion and now talk about what could you do to optimize those eight weeks. Get as much power production as you can before you do that. Or our borescope broke. We just had that happen. Uh, so the, they were going to go do borescopes. It broke. Now that I have one on site, we're not going to be able to borescope for, for two months. So we really need to know whatever the, the time frame is before they could do that, what we need to do in that interim so that we don't have any issues. So uh, the higher tier kind of work with them side by side service seems to be very popular. And uh, we'll actually do a, a monthly report with, with each site 
or, or region, depending on how they're set up, to talk about the worst ones. You know, what 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 is the best decision moving forward? Um, and the in the kind of the worst situation, they always have a priority list they can start with with the general recommendations, and uh, they can work off that list to make those decisions. We don't really want them have to have to dig in the data if they don't have to. Yeah, sure. That 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 makes a lot of sense. It makes it easy. Everybody's got so much to do trying to keep track of these turbines. <laughs> if you can simplify it, it, it's the right way to go. So if you had a, a gearbox that's starting to degrade and, and you know at some point it, it, you're going to have to do some major service on it, are there ways from sort of the predictive side that you can say, do these things, slow down the turbine maybe, avoid certain sort of uh, operations that would extend the life of, of a gearbox uh, a considerable amount of time? Can, can you have that kind of knowledge base? Yeah, so we quite often, um, especially after a shutdown kind of command alarm, we do an inspection, take a look at it. Uh, we kind of know where those levels are of, of debris generation, where you have a high likelihood that it'll go catastrophic versus at a safer level. And so we use the, the sensor as a feedback loop to say, okay, well, <clears throat> we really want to optimize it. We think you should drop down to this D-rate level. And then we use the sensor to confirm that that is a safe operational level where you're not producing too much debris that it's still accelerating up, but maybe it's at least flatlined. So it's more consistent debris generation. Kind of using our, our database and what are those levels, what do those look like, what's the turbine make and model, all that kind of feedback. You know, one of the first things we can do is optimize the D-rate strategy around the turbines that can do that. Um, so that they're still producing power, as much power as possible, but still in a safe level where they're not going to you know, dramatically increase the risk of, of splitting the gearbox, having the oil dripping down, having the cost around that, and the turbine being shut down during that time period. Yeah, it makes a lot. Of, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, or just from a preventative standpoint too, if you can start to identify what events are causing those damage, um, going back and seeing, okay, could we do things in these certain scenarios that 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 generation of debris, that damage being done, can be avoided overall. Um, now you've extended the life of the gearbox because you've no longer have these damage conditions um, within that system. And so we're working with some uh, owner operators on that, as well as OEMs on how could you use that sensor to go back and identify these are the conditions where we could do something a little bit different uh, to then avoid and extend the life of those gearboxes as opposed to just letting them run. So in, in, like if in a new turbine situation, I just buy some new turbines. You can actually come to me before I even turn them on and say, these are some of the operations you need to avoid, right? Just based on that data set you have. Yeah, on, on ones that we have information on and configurations and that sort of thing, you know, we can start to have a, at least a decent idea of what some of the challenges are up front. But um, uh, there's always differences, again, because of the supply chain and, you know, certain failure modes kind of creep to the supply chain that disrupt that, what we're really looking at. Um, it's a real great tool for OEMs on a design side as they start to develop their turbines to use that as a feedback. Of, All right, we're, we put a new control algorithm in, we see what happens, we see where it's going. We start to see an issue when we do these certain things. Okay, let's avoid that and change the way that we control the turbine. That's a really smart way of doing that. And it, that makes a lot of sense. And I, so when should a debris monitoring system be installed? I know a lot of, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, operators that say, well, when the turbine gets older and really need to know what's going on, I'll install it then and maybe only do one out of every five or one out of every 10. But that doesn't, that doesn't really make a lot of sense based on what I'm hearing here. So when's the best time to install a debris monitoring system 
to get your 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 maximum return on investment. Yeah, and that's um, one of the things that's starting to change is uh, OEMs are starting to kind of consider having these from day one. Um, so that's kind of one change. But currently today, there's still quite a large fleet being installed that that will not have them. And what we're finding is within that first year, uh, there's the early infant mortality. So if you have a two-year warranty, a three or four, whatever that is, being able to see those early infant mortalities, the new failure modes that are starting to creep into the systems, um, to optimize that, it's a, it's a nice third-party check to the condition of those gearboxes. And so most of our customers are seeing a less than a one-year payback on detection and finding of these sort of issues under warranty um, with the sensor so that they can go back and have a warranty claim. So we had many customers with installations. We've seen one, two, three, four, five gearbox um, warranty claims that otherwise they wouldn't have known about. There was nothing indicated on the vibration system. Um, they wouldn't have spent enough time on the boroscope to kind of find those. And so because it's just so obvious, and if you have that early enough before the warranty period and you can see that damage being done, you can classify how bad it is, confirm it with a boroscope. And really that's your biggest payback. You're getting an entire new gearbox or a fixed gearbox all paid for as opposed to saving money down the road when it does maybe catastrophically fail or detecting a little bit earlier. So uh, initially it was, you know, we're feeling the pain, we're feeling gearbox failures, we wanna put these in, uh, we wanna prevent that. Very quickly it became obvious that we could then see things under warranty as a third party, with only the intent to find problems where there are problems, um, really the payback ends up being uh, much better under the warranty period. Wow, that, that's that's amazing. I, I've learned a lot here today <laughs> because the debris monitoring system is not my area of expertise, but I have learned a lot from you today, and I really appreciate you being on the program. So, Stephen, thanks so much for appearing, and uh, hope to have you back on in the near future. Yeah, thanks for having me. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not actually is very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. All right, thanks Stephen for being on the podcast. Uh, check out Poseidon Systems, just Google them. They have a lot of really interesting debris and wear technology systems available on uh, wind turbines. And like we talked in the interview, I think they're on 10,000 wind turbines, which is quite a number of installations so that they definitely know what they're doing. Next up, we're going to talk about Australia. And Rosemary has been telling us for months now that they are becoming a renewable superpower. The issue is, do we have enough people to be a superpower in renewable energy? Because they're going to need a lot of uh new engineers and technicians to support this renewable growth. Vestas in Australia and New Zealand's head, uh, Danny Nielsen, has warned that Australia faces a renewable energy skills shortage, uh, that the climate commitments that Australia has al already made require hundreds of thousands of skilled workers, and it's a workforce that Australia doesn't currently have. Now, Rosemary, you being on site there, <laughs> It does seem like Australia is, is really pushing in solar and wind and another a couple of other areas. They're talking about four hundred thousand jobs. <laughs> is, are, are there enough 
engineers on site to, and technicians to support 400,000? I don't think that there's... Jobs like that? Or, or is it just going to be a transition? <laughs> there's not 400,000 unemployed engineers sitting around waiting, you know, with renewable energy experience. That's so, right. Um, I guess at that surface level of analysis, then that is true. Um I don't know. It's it's really common for businesses. I don't know. Maybe this happens everywhere, but in Australia, at least, businesses complain that there's these huge skill shortages and say that we need, you know, um, special um, exceptions to immigration rules to allow, um, you know, people to come in because yep. they don't. Mm-hmm. They, my, I'm an, more uh, often an employee than an employer, right? And so, you know, my my perspective on that is that they don't want to pay to compete with for engineers against the mining industry, for example. So they're like, oh my god, there's a skill shortage. We have to allow heaps of immigrants, um, immigrant engineers, to come in because, yeah, we don't want to pay well to take them from another industry, and we don't actually want to support um, students to go through university and you know have more people train in this because there used to be like a lot of things like businesses would sponsor cadetships or something where um, and um, I know Blue Scope Steel was a big one that that did this they would pay for you to go to university you do your summer um, work experience with the company um, and when you know you finished because they yep. had supported you you had to work for them for a certain number of years and um, you know they get the workforce that they need in that way and because they've got so many students that um, they partnered a lot with Wollongong University that particular company you know, they had some say in what people were were taught there and um, made sure that they were really, you know, job ready. Um, But that sort of is happening less and less. No one wants to actually pay to to develop the the workers they say they need. They just want to bring them in quickly so that they can, um, yeah, get them them faster and and not have to pay as much money. So that's the like cynical, um, you know, employee kind of perspective of it. But... um, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, often, I mean, people will be complaining about skill shortages and they're always complaining about skill shortage of, of engineers in Australia. And often I know a lot of people and um, good engineers who are having trouble finding work. So it's not always like it, it doesn't always feel the same from from the employee perspective as what it, it does, what the businesses are saying. Um, I, I right. also think we have a lot of engineers, yeah, they don't have a lot of renewable energy experience, but the kind of engineers we need in Australia, like we're not building wind turbines here, at least currently. Um, I don't know if Estes is planning to reopen a factory here and that's the kind of skills they think they need. But, you know, if you're just trying to develop um, wind farms and solar farms, you need people with like construction experience and, um, you know, like technicians and um, all that sort of thing. And they can all come over from other industries. You know, like if you want to train to be a wind turbine technician, um, and you have been working in, say, a coal power plant um, as a, you know, a fitter, a turner for the past 10 or 20 years, it's not going to take much for you <laughs> for you to, you know, you do a one-week-long GWO course, maybe you do um, a blade repair course, and <laughs> within, like, a very short number of months you're up to speed. So I think it's funny to wow. say we need renewable energy engineers like it's some sort of magical engineering that, you don't get from a mechanical engineering degree or experience in a, a mine or anything like that. So, um, yeah, I do see a lot more jobs. I agree um, on that point that it's a great time to be working in the industry. There's heaps of work available, interesting work available, well-paid work available. But I definitely think it's overblown. There's, you know, hundreds of thousands of new, <laughs> new renewable engineers that we're missing. What is a turner? 
they make stuff out of metal. They're um, you know, fixing <laughs> fixing metal equipment and making new new parts for it. Yeah, they're they're milling, they're um, they're on the lathe, they're yeah, doing all those sorts okay. of things. Joel, you you made this transition from oil and gas to uh-huh. renewables. That that happens pretty commonly in the United States, or is it still early in that process? You know, you're starting to see it more and more, especially here right now. I'm down in Houston, right? And you're seeing Houston has always had this hashtag energy capital of the world thing going on, right? And now they're starting to switch that gradually uh, to energy transition capital of the world. Mm. So there's a lot of really good engineers here and a lot of uh, VC money starting to float in and a lot of really cool places like... um, uh, you know, Greentown Labs is down here now, the Ion, oh, some other really? stuff like that. Okay. So, yeah, so they're, start, they're starting to grab more people out of that oil and gas realm. And at the same time, um, you're starting to see a, a major shift um, in, in the way, you know, we get energy as well. So people are wanting to go over to that side. So, yeah, I, I made the transition. For me, it was a little bit more gradual because I was in the tech space and the technology does work on a lot of subsidy stuff. So right. it was offshore wind and whatnot. Um but uh, yeah, you're you. The more and more you talk to some people, um, it's it's starting to change quite a bit here, engineering wise. I mean, and a lot of it crosses directly, right? Um, Technip FMC, huge uh, subsea oil and gas uh, and construction company, topside everything. They you know they build chemical plants and all this, but they've in, they've invested in uh, a big win, the X Wind platform. They invested fifteen. They own I think they own fifteen percent of that now. Wow. Um, so okay. they've they've made the direct jump right into offshore wind, right? So they're the, the companies are starting to do it too, not only just um, startups and whatnot. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a very interesting future and a lot of jobs available in the United States, and it sounds like Australia. That's great. All right, last on the docket for this week: portable wind turbines. Now, we have all seen these little gizmo things that sort of produce some power, or the ones you put up in your backyard that are maybe a kilowatt or so. But we, there's a there's a couple of smaller wind turbines that have been introduced to the marketplace. The one in particular that I've seen is uh, from a Canadian-based company called Urea Technologies, A-U-R-E-A. It has sort of, yeah, I'm not sure that I pronounced that right. But the, but the wind turbine they make is called Shine. And it's about the size of a one-liter bottle. So everybody has had a one-liter bottle of soda. Knows it's sort of about yay tall, uh, and it's it's capable of charging handheld electronics such as your phone, your tablet, some lights, LED lights, probably some cameras. weighs about three pounds and it has a forty-watt turbine in it, but it'll fit in your backpack. And it also has a battery in it, uh, a twelve amp-hour lithium-ion battery in it, so you can charge it up and it'll hold that charge. So one of the keys to this, Rosemary, is it has patent-pending high-efficiency blades and a lightweight design. So it weighs, uh, it has 13 watts per pound. That sounds pretty cool. And the pictures on the website are actually amazing. So you just throw it in your backpack, walk through the woods, and then when you want to make a phone call or watch Netflix, I guess, <laughs> you power up your iPad and using the wind turbine. Is it, Rosemary, is this something we're going to see more of, this sort of portable wind generated charging systems um maybe i mean there's quite a few around and i mean that's great they've got patent pending on their high efficiency blades but i mean it's not not a secret how to design a you know maximum efficiency wind turbine blade so i um i don't give them any any credit for that other than maybe you know something catchy on their website um it's cool that you can fit it in a backpack sounds nice and light um and 
yeah, you can charge your, your mobile phone or uh, I don't know, whatever else you want, low power devices. So that's that's cool. Uh, it's something that people ask me about every now and then because there are a few available. So people, you know, get in touch to ask what I think about different ones. And I have been thinking it would be a cool yeah. video to do to, to get a bunch because I go camping a lot. Um, so, you know, compare them also to, you know, like a portable solar panel um, and see, you know, how much usable power do you really get out of it? Was one thing that has crossed my mind right. is that, like, when I go camping, I'm pretty concerned to set my tent up in the least windy place possible. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> you know, it doesn't strike me as an <laughs> immediate, like, <laughs> an immediate obvious way to to get electricity at my my campsite. Um, I mean, in Australia now, when you go camping, everyone's got, um, you know, everyone's electrified their campsite, which I find incredibly irritating, but you know, everybody's got solar panels now. Is, and is that what they, is that what they call glamping? No. You ever heard that term? Is that an American term? No, glamping? I mean, it's a, I don't know. I think it's a global term. At least I've heard it. Um, glamping is like, you're not on a camp mattress or a stretcher. You're, uh, in a proper bed and, um, you're probably, with power, yeah, three thousand, three thousand thread count sheets. Yeah, like you'd need a lot of these wind turbines <laughs> to, um, you know, probably power <laughs> power the lights in a, a proper glamping setup, and you've probably got a heater yeah. if it's cold, and you know all this sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> but solar panels are very common at Australian campsites now, for for better or worse. But I have never seen someone using a, a wind turbine um, to power their camp setup. I would, I would be keen to, to get a bunch and try them um, and, you know, do a, a review video. Um, I think that, you know, what's going to make the difference isn't going to be the efficiency. It's going to be how reliable is it? Is it stable? You know, um, like when you've got a wind turbine, there's a mm. big a big thrust force trying to push the tower over. So I, I would expect that right. actually your like tower design and tethering system would be the more obvious place where innovation is is needed and can make a, a point of difference. Um, yeah, so no, it would be interesting to try them out. Um, and yeah, it would suit well, some maybe people. Maybe Shine will send you one, or maybe the Aria. Aria is it Aria? Maybe it's Aria. A U R E A, guys. I think so. Aria. Sorry, Aria is not the right term. Clearly, Aria. <laughs> <laughs> we'll send you a Shine unit. Then we can figure out what it is and how it works, and then you know you can put it on your Engineering with Rosie yeah. YouTube channel yeah. and like get a hundred thousand views on the thing, and they'll be internet famous. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, um, yeah, they should send me one, and and all their competitors should send me one too, and I can do a a big comparison and may the the best portable wind turbine win. <laughs> That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's. YouTube channel. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.